Hello again. Uh, if you do have your Bibles with you, it would be really helpful if you just kept them in front of you. As we've just, if you've read the passage, uh, it's always a, a good a habit for us, a good discipline for us to, um, to, to keep our Bibles open uh, so that as I'm working through the, the, the passage that you've got the word in front of you that you can follow along. Uh, let, let's just pray and ask for God's help as we do that right now. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you that uh, you have promised uh, to be with us and that as we gather here in this place, thank you that you're present with us. We ask you that as we open up your word right now, please speak to us through it. Uh, please challenge us. Uh, please point us to the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that your spirit might transform and change us to mold us and make us more into the image of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's not really a big thing in Australia. I found that out this morning. But in the UK, the Christmas number one is massive. It's really, really important. Who is going to be the Christmas number one? Now, if I were to ask you, who has the most Christmas number ones in the history of the UK around Christmas time, how would you answer? What would you say? Who do you think? Mariah Carey. The Beatles have had four Christmas number ones, but last year, someone beat it. They actually got their fifth Christmas number one. And it's this person called Lad Baby. Lad Baby is a YouTuber, and him and his wife Roxanne have had consecutive number ones from 2018, five number ones. Uh, they do it as a number of novelty songs, Christmas songs, and they do it in order to raise charity for Food Bank um, in the UK. Uh, the way that they do that is, is that, for example, there's a song called We Built This City, you know, by Starship, you know, We Built This City on Rocket. You know, Ian knows what I'm singing about, nobody else knows, but okay. Um, but they changed the lyrics to something else. There is a clue. We built this city on, anybody want to guess? Sausage rolls, that's right. So he's holding a sausage roll. So they changed the lyrics to, we built this city on sausage rolls. The following year, you know, I love rock and roll. So they changed the lyrics to, I love sausage rolls. Very good, you're getting it. Um, the following year, instead of the sausage roll theme, they, they changed don't stop, you know, don't stop believing. They changed it to don't stop eating, okay? Uh, they changed the formula up the following year. Oh, sorry, that was the... Um, the, the uh, Don't Stop, what, what was that one there? That was the uh, I Love Sausage Rolls. Uh, the following year, they, they teamed up with Ed Sheeran and Elton John, and they had sausage rolls for everyone. Uh, pretty deep and meaningful um, Christmas song. Uh, last year, they took a really well-known charity song, and they changed the lyrics, you know. But say a prayer to pray for the sausage roll. That's right. They had food aid last year uh, to raise money for charity. Now, thankfully, this evening, we're not going to be spending evening talking about, you know, sausage rolls. Probably this year in the UK, it'll probably be something about mince pies or something. I'll probably get the number one. Uh, but this evening, we're not talking about sausage, but rather, we are talking about charity. And we are talking about another Christmas song, probably the most Christmas song ever sung, and that is Mary's Song. 
And this evening we will see, just like Lad Baby, you know, goes back and draws upon songs from the past, we will see how Mary also draws upon songs in the past in order to help us this evening understand that very first Christmas. Uh, Mary's song, uh, sometimes referred to as the Magnificat, uh, it has been the central part of every branch of Christianity for centuries. And in many ways, it acts as a bit of a trailer to a movie or a, a preview to, like, to a new series on Netflix. It introduces us, and it should introduce us, to the life and ministry of Jesus. Its, its purpose is to get us up to speed. It's to get us in the zone for all that's about to happen in Luke's gospel. The song, it can be split up into three parts. The first part in verses 46 to 49 is the supernatural, personal miracle of salvation. I hope you noticed, but the first um, few, few verses of the song, they are incredibly personal. Notice how Mary says, my soul praises, my spirit rejoices, all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. And notice also just the overtones of grace and, 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 and joy in her voice. Mary's expression of joy, it's, a, it's like an extension. If you remember last week, we looked at joy last week. It's almost an extension of that theme of joy. Something mammoth, something incredible is about to happen. Something that is so joyous that it should cause us to, 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 and when we leave this evening, to, to rush out of this place doing cartwheels as we go out this evening. It should cause us to go into the aisles and, and dance in the evening, dance, dance this evening with joy. I know for, okay, it's a bit much, okay, clap, okay, at least it should cause us to kind of wait, clap this evening uh, because this is something that is joyous and mammoth. It's huge. But also look at how intimate her words are. Mary has this like intense personal response to what's happening. She says, you know, my soul, the, the very core of my being, it praises God. It magnifies the Lord. You know, Mary's words are also theologically rich. You know, she knows the greatness of the Lord. God is called her Savior. You know, she recognizes God as being the mighty one. She says that his name is holy. You know, Mary is just a young teenage girl. Yet in these opening verses, she acknowledges the supernatural power of a holy, powerful God, a God who has acted throughout the whole of salvation history. You know, in true Western scholarly fashion, true to form, some scholars have doubted whether Mary even wrote these words. I mean, how could she? She's just a peasant girl with little education. How could someone like Mary write something as rich as this? You know, in some sections of the Christian faith, it's only middle class, educated Christians who can never know and understand God deeply. Yet how many times in our lives has our religious pride 
sometimes being destroyed by illiterate, unschooled brothers and sisters who are so filled with the joy of the Lord and who know God humbly, intimately, and maturely, just like Mary. Um, every year, um, I used to go to the uh, Thai, Thailand. I used to go there to train clergy and other leaders who were ministering you know, in Karen churches and refugees um, in the Thai-Burma border. Um, there's a photograph with, with me there uh, with Serena, a young Serena. Michelle's here this evening, who's also spent some time at the border. I've just explained this morning this evening. That's not Philip, okay, just to be clear. That's Wales. Um, at the Thai Burma border. We used to go there. There's a, there's a high school there that we support and we've been involved with as well. Uh, but every year I'd go there to teach some of the, the leaders uh, in the refugee camps and, and, and the, the Thai community, the Karen communities along the border. And one year um, I went there, I took a group of, of pastors with me from Australia and we were sitting at Nobo Academy. We were sitting there having lunch together. And as we're eating, uh, we turned and there was this leader came out of the tall grass and he came out and he was like wearing, he was kind of had this machete in his hand and he, his, his t-shirt was all like stained and it was all dirty and, um, and he kind of, his face, he kind of had like beetle, you know, because he was chewing some beetle nut, the juice was around his, his mouth. He had lost a lot of his teeth because of the chewing of the beetle nut. He was still chewing the beetle nut when he came and he came and he gave me a hug. And as he gave me a hug, uh, one of the guys said to me, Sam, who's that? And I said, oh. That's the archdeacon. And he said, oh, I think I've overprepared. David, the archdeacon, he didn't look very sophisticated. You know, on paper, his credentials didn't look that great. At nighttime, he would put these little bottles um, which would catch bugs like beetles and cockroaches and stuff. And then the next day, he'd grind them down into, a, into a, a powder so we could sprinkle them over our rice for breakfast the next day. When we were doing the, you know, we were sitting doing the training, David would start saying something very serious in Koran, and everybody would be, you know, listening to him really intently. And then he'd just say something, and everybody would just crack up laughing. <laughs> you know, on paper, he didn't look that sophisticated, but David is probably one of the greatest leaders that I've ever met. When he was in Thailand, when he was in Burma, the Burmese army came, uh, he had to leave his, his, his Anglican congregation. Uh, they, they were dispersed across the border into Thailand and his bishop came to him and said, David, you need to go with your people. And he said, look, once you get there, I can't help you, but I promise that someday I will take your funeral when you die. That's all I can do. David crossed the border for 11 years. He was up and down the border with his people in rice fields, teaching them the Bible with four like sticks propped up with a, like a plastic, a piece of plastic um, over it as a shelter in paddy fields, teaching the gospel, teaching the word of God to his people. And one day, you know, he, he showed me an album. It was a photograph album of all the loved ones that he had who had, who had migrated, who, who had left and gone to dispersed all over the world. And I said to him, David, why, why haven't you gone? Why didn't you go? And he was, all, he was quite shocked, actually, because I asked him that. And he said, Sam, don't you realize that there are still villages along the, the Burmese side of the border where those villages have never heard the gospel? 
They've never heard about the Lord Jesus. How can I leave and leave them? You know, sometimes someone's, you know, capacity uh, to personally know God and the experience, to experience the joy of salvation. You know, sometimes we think it's, it's linked to someone's education or how much they know about God. But people can have a lot of knowledge about God but still not know God. You know, Mary, her humility, her place in life teaches us, her relationship with God teaches us you don't need to have multiple degrees to know God. Notice also just how Mary, you know, oh, sorry, that's David. Sorry, I should have showed you that. That's actually David there on the right. Um, notice also just how Mary, she, she isn't full of herself. She doesn't exalt herself. She doesn't seek glory or praise for herself, but rather she reflects praise back to God. She recognizes that she will be called blessed in the future only because of what God has done for her, not because in herself she's somehow better than anybody else. Mary's feelings are clear. God owes her nothing. Well, she has received everything from him. There's nothing particularly exceptional about Mary. She's ordinary. She's unremarkable. Yet God has looked on her with favor. God has shown incredible charity and grace towards her. And have you noticed also that Mary recognizes that she herself is not the Savior. She, she calls the God her Savior, my Savior. She recognizes that she too needs to be saved. Um, as some of you know, uh, a few weeks ago, I was with uh, my wife, Yorika. We went to Vietnam for our wedding anniversary. Um, there we went to visit uh, the Notre Dame. Could anybody been there? Saigon, Ho Chi Minh. Just beautiful, isn't it? Great, but it's all being restored and stuff at the minute. Uh, there, right in front of the building, there was a massive statue of Mary, and it was beautiful. It was really pretty. Uh, but I noticed that under the foot of Mary was... The snake was the serpent. And we know that that reference comes from Genesis 3, verse 15, which looks forward to a day when a descendant of Eve would someday painfully undo and defeat the work of the devil. And we know this is pointing ultimately to Jesus dying on the cross, reversing the curse, you know, destroying the devil's work. It isn't referring to, to Mary. You know, reading Mary's song, I think if Mary had been with us on our tour to Vietnam, she would have been quite embarrassed to see herself publicly put in such salvific ways. She'd probably sue the Catholic Church. She'd probably plead with them to take down the statue because she would argue it is Jesus who is worthy of love. It is only Jesus that is worthy of our love and our devotion, and not her. This year, do you know who was voted as the person of the year this year? Of all the people in the world, who was voted the person of the year by Time magazine? Taylor Swift. You all know the answer to that. It was Taylor Swift. All the people in the world, Taylor Swift, 
was the person of the year. And I, I don't want to anger some Swifties that are here this evening, but if that was Mary, if Mary was put on the front page of Time magazine, she would hate it. And later on, you know, in Luke's gospel, someone shouts at Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. And Jesus doesn't say, yes, indeed. Rather, he says, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and who keep it. You know, Mary is a great example of faith. Let's not take that away from Mary. And I think Luke actually sets her up in the gospel to, to, to be a great example of faith, someone that we can follow. But let us also acknowledge and recognize what Mary teaches us, that Jesus and not herself is the object of our salvation. It's Jesus, not Mary. As she testifies, the mighty one, our great Savior, our great God, who, who speaks the universe into existence, who dictates and governs the history of the world and all his power, all his might, all his knowledge, the God who forms us as humans, who brings each of us into ex in existence, chooses to enter into human history by being born, by being conceived in the womb of a young virgin girl from a poor background in a seemingly obscure backwater place. And he does that in order to redeem you. He does that in order to redeem me. His love for us, his love for each of us is that personal. And it's staggering to think who a God who is holy other, a God who is pure and holy and spotless, who reigns eternally in heaven, should stoop as low to join us in our DNA, to join us in our experience in order to save us, in order to make us his treasured possession. And who through his incarnation, through his atonement, through his resurrection, through his ascension, miraculously saves us by planting his own Holy Spirit DNA in us so that we might live with him eternally. I mean, surely the knowledge of that this evening should encourage you, should it not? Surely it should lift us out of the gutter, cause us to be excited, you know, please feel free to do cartwheels down the... Um, down the, you know, this evening, in the pews, that kind of way, down the aisle this evening, run out, jumping off the steps, you know, shouting woohoo and clicking your heels, whatever you need to do. But surely it could cause us to, to be filled with joy this evening because of the miracle of salvation. Mary, from verses 50-53, she, she turns from the supernatural personal work of salvation to the surprising reversal of God's salvation through history. In verse 51, we read that he's done a mighty deed with his arm. And it's not just any old mighty deed, but Mary's referring to the Exodus when God rescued his people. Mary sees her election. She sees her miraculous con um, conception in the same vein. It signifies a fundamental shift in the fortunes of her people and the history of the world. And her words, I think, are, are an echo of Hannah's prayer back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. When you read this, you automatically go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. There Hannah speaks of a series of surprises and reversals at the coming of God's king. 
And Hannah's prayer is also a response to God about how he has miraculously provided a child for her. Hannah's experience reminds us that that she wasn't the first barren woman in the Bible to have a child. All the founding patriarchs, all the fathers of the faith, all had wives who, who were not able to bear children at some point. You know, people like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. Each of these women's lives, like Hannah's, at some point looked unimportant. They looked irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. God involving them in his plans while they were childless would have on paper at that time made his plans look unimpressive. They would have looked like God didn't know what he was doing. But each of their painful stories, it was God's launching pad to save the whole world. Each of their stories would prove to be a reminder that salvation would only be accomplished by God's power, by God's grace in his time, according to his ways, which often didn't always match up to worldly ideas of success and power. Time after time, God chooses barren women to carry on his story of redemption. But when the time is right, God chose to take one step further, for the Savior of the world is born to be a virgin. You know, this is the supreme demonstration to the whole world that salvation can never be accomplished in our own strength. Salvation can never be accomplished according to our ways, but can only be accomplished by God's power, by God's grace, in His time and in His way. We see God's power. We see that that mighty act of salvation. We see that in in three different ways, three different reversals. Mary there says that He scatters the proud. You know, that that, that, that was words, it's like a dandelion. You know, whenever you blow a dandelion, it's just gone. Just one puff and it's all gone. You know, people may consider themselves to be important. They may puff themselves up. They may think that they don't need God. They're important in themselves. You know, they're better off without him. They may have even made a name for themselves and they enjoy being adored and worshipped. But in the end, they will be gone. And in the end, their legacy will be gone. And in God's economy, all of that will mean very little. Do you know who this is? Anybody know who it is? Sorry? Beckham. What's his first name? David Beckham. Anybody not know who that is? There you go. Probably one of the most famous footballers ever to have lived. He's got a documentary now on Netflix. You can watch that. He and his wife, Victoria, a.k.a. Posh Spice, you know, they're a a global brand. You know, this week I read that they are worth $767 million. Now, does anybody know who this is? Anybody know? Sorry? No. This is Alfredo Di Stefano. I'm not surprised that most people here, nobody knows who that is. Um, He was like the David Beckham in his day. He played for Real Madrid in the 1950s. They won 11 campaigns. He won eight Spanish titles. 
He scored 218 goals in 282 matches. He won five consecutive European Cups, and in each of those finals, he scored a goal. But nobody remembers him anymore. And someday it will be the same with David Beckham. He will just be, he'll be forgotten. His wealth, his fame, his tattoos, his wife, his golden locks, his golds will all be gone just like that. You know, Taylor Swift, you know, she may be on the front cover of Time magazine. She may be in front of, you know, millions, she may perform in front of millions of people. She's set to make a billion dollars on her current world tour. But someday people will stop chanting her name. Someday people will say, Taylor who? And this is my prophecy for Taylor Swift. Someday she will struggle to fill the Fortitude Valley Music Hall, which holds like 1,500 people. You see, without her life anchored in Christ, everything she sings, everything that she has, everything that she stands for will be no more. Living a life of independence from God in the end will not amount to anything. And God will guarantee that. While whatever we do in this life, however small, however insignificant it may seem, will last for eternity. In verse 52, we see another reversal. God has toppled the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted the lowly. In the Christmas story, it isn't King Herod who's the focus of God's attention. In the life of Jesus, it isn't the religious leaders who are recipients of God's favor and his blessing. They are all blinded by their own success. They're blinded by their own power. They miss out on God's salvation. In the end, it's the lonely teenage girl. The shepherds, the pagan astronomers, you know, old faithful Simeon and Anna who get God and they get the life that he offers. And it's to those who recognize how low they are in comparison with God that he exalts. Those who already see themselves as being exalted have only one place to go, and that is down. Now, I've met a lot of giants in my life. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, this is my old mom. Uh, my mom came to faith in her 40s. She didn't grow up in a Christian home. She, she became a Christian when she was a follower of the Lord Jesus when she was 42 years old. And my mom just wanted to serve the Lord. That's what she wanted to do. And she decided she wanted to be the caretaker of our church. Um, you know, we had a caretaker in our church who used to come almost as soon as the church finished. They would kind of have their, their keys and they'd be jangling their keys, wanting people to leave as quickly as possible. And my mom didn't like that. So she thought, oh, maybe I can become the caretaker. And, you know, on a Wednesday night, there'd be like 150 people there um, at, a, at a, like a congregational Bible study kind of thing. And at the end of the evening, you know, you'd have to pack all the chairs out, just like we do here on a, on a Sunday evening. And every week, I would watch my mother, who's this little small, you know, like, pick up those chairs by herself. Nobody would ever stop to help her. Like, she'd, she'd be dragging these chairs across the hall, able-bodied men just standing around chatting, watching as she does it. And she did actually move out of the way, you know, and let her kind of get past. And she, you know, she'd never complain about it. She just wanted to serve God. 
My picture of my mother is every morning when I used to get up to go to school or, or during the summer, during the winter, whenever it was, I'd come downstairs and my mom was always on her knees in our living room next to the sofa praying. Every single time. This is Elizabeth. Elizabeth, she's elderly. She was housebound. And when I visited um, Elizabeth, you know, she'd be sitting on her, on her great big armchair. It was a huge armchair. Um, it was quite wide at the side. And she'd have these journals, you know, piled up. First time I ever went to see her, I sat at her feet. And I was speaking to her. And as I was chatting, she kind of took out what, the journals. And she was looking through the journals. And she said, I didn't ask for this. But she said, Sam, I'm so sorry. I just can't fit you in. I said, what do you mean? She says, look, um, these are my prayer journals. I just sit and I pray all day. And these are the people that I'm praying for. And I'm sorry, but I just, there's no spot for you. I just can't, I just can't fit you in. I'm very sorry. <laughs> you know, to this day, I, I thought, for me, that armchair looked like a throne. <laughs> this faithful woman of God just sitting, praying. quietly in a place that nobody knows about. You know, in God's kingdom, it's the big names are often the no names of this world. In God's economy, the greatest are the least in the eyes of the world. In God's team, those that you wouldn't, they, you know, in God's team, those who wouldn't even make it onto the team sheet of the world are the strikers. They're the, the big hitters, the first hitters. Right, throughout the Gospels, it is those who recognize their need for Jesus and those who call out to him who are saved. You know, we often clamor in this life for things that seem important, things that are powerful, things that are popular, but finally they end up just being temporal and worthless. We ignore things that seem to be small and insignificant in the pursuit of personal comfort and satisfaction, but in the end, we're just left with lives that are empty, lives that are lost. Now, verse 53 is, is a direct quote from Psalm 107, verse 9, and I think it's important for us to note that God is not a, he's not a Marxist, he's not a communist, he isn't anti-rich, he's not against people you know, in positions of power. You know, the hungry are those who recognize their need for God. Those who cry out to God for help. They know where their help comes from is from the Lord. And it's in Christ that they find their satisfaction. And if you come to him hungry, he will fill you with good things. The rich, you know, those who depend on themselves and their wealth and their riches, they receive nothing from God because they come to God telling God they don't really need anything. They are islands of self-reliance. They have no bridges to God and to all the spiritual resources and riches that he promises. So who's going to benefit from God's salvation? Well, it's those who are humble. It's those who learn to fear God, who recognize their need of God, those who, who see who they are in light of who is it. It's those who, who seek to find their satisfaction and their worth and their reliance and their relevance, their confidence in their identity in Him. Who's going to miss out? Well, it's those who reject God, those who center their lives in themselves, who pursue wealth and fame at the expense of having a relationship with God, who live for the temporal, 
not for the external, for the eternal. And in the end, they will miss out, not just in the life to come, but also in this life as well. You know, if you're here this evening, maybe you're listening and you think, Sam, that's a bit naive. It's a bit nonsensical. It may be a long way off from what you believe or, or how you are living. It might sound even a bit silly. But in reality, these surprising reversals are the way the world has always been. It's always how God has worked. Look at verse 50. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. God's mercy, it's always received. It's always been received and enjoyed by those who are humble, by those who are God-fearing, those who are thirsty and hungry for righteousness. Mary, she, she knows her history. And I'm sure that she's reflecting on the past as she sings these words. She knows what's happened to Pharaoh. She knows about the Philistines and King Saul and the kings of Israel and in Judah, the kings of Babylon and Persia, and how they all fell. She remembers how God has exalted, you know, Joseph and Moses and Samuel and David and Esther and Daniel, and he's never allowed his chosen people to be completely destroyed. And her own life, Mary's life, and placing honor, you know, God placing honor on a poor young girl in a town that is obscure, that is just known for its trouble, and raising up the Messiah at such a spiritually barren time in Israel, she also traces the handiwork of Israel's faithful covenant love and work to her, to her own day. You know, lastly, in verses 54 to 55, the faithful fulfillment of God's salvation. God is acting... And God is going to act according to the faithful promises that he has made to his people. We read that he has helped his servant Israel. He, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Remember God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes a promise to Abraham, and thousands of years later, he fulfills it through the birth of Jesus. One of the reasons why I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus today, is because of that. How does God do that? I cannot make a promise today to you, 100% sure it's going to happen tomorrow. I could say, Matt, I'm going to come and pick you up in St. Lucia tomorrow at 9 a.m. I don't know what the traffic's going to be like tomorrow. I don't know whether I'm going to sleep in or not. I probably will. You know, 99%, I will not be there at 9 a.m. And that's just one promise. God makes a promise. And over a period of 1,800 years, it is fulfilled. God gets from Abraham through barrenness, through infidelity, through incest, through war, through famine, through slavery, rebellion, nationwide apostasy, exile, foreign occupation. He gets through all of that to the birth of Jesus, just as he has promised. You know, that should fill us with confidence this evening, that just as God fulfilled his promise over thousands of years, he will also fulfill his promises to us. That just as God brought his kingdom to bear upon Hannah and Mary and those who were humble, those who were needy in need of God's mercy in their day, 
so God can bring his kingdom to bear upon us and our lives this evening. You know, Mary's song surely causes us this evening to rejoice. It challenges us to, to humbly surrender our lives afresh to God. It asks us to confidently put our trust that God is faithful, that he loves us, he will fulfill his promises to us and to his people, and that he loves us, he loves you with an everlasting love. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song uh, from Mary this evening. Lord, a song that we have heard sung and we have read, Lord, many times. And we thank you for the reminder that it is to us this evening of just your incredible faithfulness to your people. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're able to not just make promises, but you're able to fulfill those promises in your time and in your power and by your grace. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for, the, for coming uh, to this earth, through sending the Lord Jesus as a child to be born. And not just to be born, but to live and to die and to rise from the dead for each and every one of us. Lord, we thank you for the miracle of salvation. Thank you for putting your spirit within us, for redeeming us, for filling us with your life. And Lord, I pray, Lord, this evening, please show us what it means to humbly come before you. Lord, bowing our knee before you, trusting afresh in you, Trusting, Lord, that the way that we live our lives, Lord, may look very different from those around us, that the things that we live our lives for, the things that we pour our lives in, Lord, and the whole scheme of things in this world may seem to look so sad and irrelevant and so small. Yet, Lord, in your economy, Lord God, they are great. They are eternally meaningful. And not only are they eternally meaningful, but they will last for eternity. Oh Lord, so please take our small things, take our seemingly insignificant things. And Lord, please take them and use them for your glory, we pray. Oh Heavenly Father, because we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.